It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy, with your hosts, Eric, Isaac, and Caleb. Listen in as they discuss the 2006 film, A Scanner Darkly. Here we are for our third part of Strange Animation. Eric, did I tell you anything about this series? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, yeah, I didn't think I did. Yeah, so me and Isaac have been going through, I made like a little collection of four films that are all about strange animated films. And this is our third one. The first one we did was Fantastic Planet. Okay. I'm sure you've seen the uh, Criterion cover of that. Yes. Then we did a little uh, uh, anime film called Angel's Egg. And now we've arrived here at A Scanner Darkly, 2006. And I know that both of you haven't seen this film, so I guess I'll do my little, because uh, I usually ask when you guys saw it, but... So for me, I saw this probably in 2007, probably early 2007 when it came to HBO. And I just stumbled across it, as I usually did with HBO back in the day. And I was like, whoa, this movie, something about it is just weird. I've never seen anything like this. And I was absolutely intrigued. Um, I didn't find out about the rotoscoping until much later, but so this was one of my introductions to stranger animation which is why i decided to include it on the list just cutting in here from the editing booth i realized i forgot to record the summary for this episode um although i did write it down <laughs> so i'll read that now as follows full spoilers uh, summary by the way our story takes place in 2015 following a group of three men living together in a house in california they are all addicted to a drug called substance d or death our lead character is named bob arctor played by keanu reeves but wait, is that his name? Because at the same time, he's also an undercover narcotics agent called Fred. Fred spends most of his time in a suit that scrambles his outer appearance into a nebulous blob being, and sits in front of scanners watching and investigating the three men that live inside that house, including himself, as well as his girlfriend slash dealer, Donna Hawthorne, played by Winona Ryder. Fred is looking for the source of Substance D, but things start to get tricky when he's told that his main focus for the case should be Bob Arctor. A tough turn of events becomes tougher, as Bob slash Fred starts to enter the phase of brain decay caused by Substance D, and his two identities start to completely split. It's eventually discovered that Fred, or Bob, is no longer capable of performing his duties as a narc, and is sent to New Path, an organization that helps in the recovery of Substance D addicts. It's then that we discover that Donna was also an undercover narcotics officer, and her purpose was to groom Arctor for his real mission, which was to become so severely damaged by the drug that New Path would feel confident sending him to their secret farm program where they produce Substance D. We see Arctor arrive there, 
and he inquires as to whether he'll get to see his friends at the old facility again soon. He's told he'll get to see them on Thanksgiving. And before the credits roll, working in the fields, Arctor, now Bruce, discovers the blue flower of death and sneaks one into his sock as a present for his friends at Thanksgiving. And that's how we end A Scanner Darkly. But for you, Isaac, had you heard much about this movie before? Did you Was it something that was on your radar to see? or As I progressed in the new tens, late tens, I think I started hearing about A Scanner Darkly somewhere. Like, it would just... If I was on TV Tropes or Wikipedia, I would, like, it would maybe get mentioned. But A Scanner Darkly, the title, not so much this movie. Because this is a film. Mm. Or this is a, Sorry, this is based off of a novel. Or was it a novella? Or a short story? Novel. This is based off of a novel by the late Philip K. Dick. Which, up front, I did not read for this review. <laughs> I did. Maybe I'll try to, like, read it at some point and give my thoughts on it. <laughs> when I put this list together, um, I was like, okay, I've got probably, like, three months before we get to this. I'm just gonna, yeah, pick up this book. And so I did read it before this, so I can discuss a little bit about that. That's good. But, <laughs> That's good to know. But for you, Eric, did you, uh, was it, I, I'm assuming this was on your radar just because of the director. Yes, true. Did, have you seen it before or seen any bits of it? Or? Nope, not really at all. Uh, and I can't really explain why. I don't really have an explanation. And of course, I was aware of his movie prior to this that was similarly done. Oh, yes. Um... Waking Life, but I also have not seen The Waking Life either. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I was just aware of them when they came out, but I don't know. I just never had the impetus, uh, which is weird because I do for plenty of his other movies and newer movies. Just, I don't know, just got lost in the shuffle. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll say, um, since I saw it initially on HBO, when I picked up the DVD, um, I watched it numerous times, probably like four or five times within the span of about five years. But I haven't touched it in a long time. And so, coming back to it, um, I didn't know what it was going to be like. I was like, I remember liking it when I was like a teenager, but I wasn't sure it was going to hold up. And, of course, I decided to read the book ahead of time. And I was like, oh, no, like, should I maybe wait to read it after I watch it again? Because is it going to ruin the movie? Um, and I really do think that the element of the animation really helps it stand out in terms of because as an adaptation, it's it feels like most adaptations where it's kind of they selected a number of bits and kind of strung them together, but it doesn't feel like a cohesive version of the, the story, you know. Because of course it's a film, they can't really tell the the whole story. But the fact that it's this very unusual rotoscoping animation helps it stand up is still unique and still, in my opinion, worth seeing in its own right. But I guess maybe that's jumping into it too quick. But for for your initial thoughts, Isaac, what what were you, what were your early kind of uh, thoughts of seeing this one, in the particular style of it? This movie made me think of, uh, it kind of made me think like it was almost a very light rendition. Even though again they're two different directors, but it kind of made me think this is almost like a Tarantino film, with how it's structured non-linearly, li linearly. Mm. Linearly, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> I can't speak, sorry. And Fair enough. But I also thought of uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I've never seen, except for the one scene. Hmm. Uh, I don't know why. I just I just thought of that, just because it's a funny title, I guess, and it's also a funny 
uh, uh, title card. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a funny drug movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, this is a drug movie through and through, but. My usual MO with these, especially with Strange Animation, was I was trying to think of it intellectually, uh, emotionally, and then ph- philosophically. I didn't have anything with that with this film. Maybe because I was just like <laughs> under a lot of stress prior to mm. watching it, but maybe it's just like this is not this is if if anything, your selection of these is perfect because they're all very different, like just all very different. Um, and and it's just not just the fact like from which countries is come, they all come from and what eras they're made in, but like Man Alive, yeah, this is completely different than the last two that we've done. Yes, <laughs> but for the movie itself, um, is this what how stoners operate nowadays? <laughs> At least ten years ago, not ten. Sorry, not tw- ten years ago. Almost like twenty years ago. Because, man, this is. Uh, it's also felt like it was in the nineties, but it wasn't. Like it's supposed to be mm. seven years from like when the film was released. So, like two thousand thirteen, apparently, is when this was supposed to take place. Yeah, no. This this totally feels like yeah, maybe like late nineties, early two thousands. Doesn't feel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I guess you can't really predict, and maybe, I don't know, maybe Linklater was still kind of stuck in that vibe. I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe he was making, what what's that thing called? Uh, boyhood? <laughs> oh, God. I think that came out in 20, or actually I think it was 2014 that that came out. But but for you, Eric, uh, initial thoughts with this one. Um, I didn't, okay. I didn't realize it was going to be based upon a famous novel. Um... I, so I'm pretty familiar with Linklater's other works. Um, well, I don't know how familiar Isaac is with Linklater's works, but they usually... You can split most of them into one of two categories. There's his more traditional mainstream movies, and then there's his, what I just call, talkies. Um, and I thought this movie was just going to be in his talkie category um but then right away i was like no it's not i guess i was expecting it to be even though i haven't seen it waking life 2.0 and it, it was not that at all it was actually based upon a legitimate novel which i didn't really know that was a thing link later was into was like adapting a novel so this just like really took me by surprise and while there are certain elements about it that are very link later, um, this still uh, animation mm-hmm. aside stands out as a really unique link later film amongst his filmography, and that's animation aside, just based on the story and everything. <laughs> so yeah, that was just, just lots, tons of surprises for me. Yeah, and did you feel overall pleased with the the final? Pro- I guess maybe maybe that's final kind of thoughts. Well. Like. I have to admit, upon first pass, I was left um, just kind of like question marks uh, because I got a little bit lost with some of the plot near the end. Mm-hmm. So I got really confused. Uh, but then I had to um, read up a little bit more and get straighten some things out and then kind of figure out again that it was based upon a novel and then. Once I realized that, a lot more th- things made sense. 
and who the author was of the book, and then more things made sense. But man, this this is wow! I I just never would have expected anything like this, and I'm such a Linklater fan. It's so <laughs> weird. This is so mostly so different from what he usually does. Yeah, and I mean, again, I I haven't seen Waking Life, but I've still never seen a movie with this particular look. And Isaac, um, what were your thoughts on the animation? Did did you read up on how they did it or anything like that, or? What do you think they might have done with this? I intentionally chose not to look up anything before or after. Again, trying to... Unlike... Okay, yeah. Unlike with Angel's Leg, where I started looking behind the scenes of, like, trying to get into uh, Oshi's head of how, like, what this film was. Also, an, our second film in Strange Animation that's based off a book. Uh, oh, yeah? Hopefully we can go to... Um, what was it called? Le Homme's the Strange? No, I've <laughs> yeah, I can't remember either. For... Yeah, I forget what it's called. I wrote it down somewhere. Um, but yeah, another one that's but widely like widely different because um, I don't remember when Philip K. Do you remember when Philip K. Dick wrote this? It's nineteen seventy-seven. Seventy-seven. Okay. The Year of Our Lord, nineteen seventy-seven. <laughs> Good year. The year of Star Wars. <laughs> Great year. That's what I mean. Suspiria. Yeah. Um. The animation style. So I, once again, I don't think I've seen rotoscoping like this since. I'd say, I I don't think so. I have. I think no other. Oh, you have. Okay. Well, I'm incorrect. There you go. Oh, I'm yeah. I'm curious to hear about it. But but go ahead, Isaac. We'll I'll grab that after. <laughs> uh, I wish more studios did this. I'm surprised it was Warner Brothers that they allowed this. Like it's that's surprising because they're kind of got their heads up their own rear but and not are, are, are not at all prevy to what modern audience is like so I'm just I'm very impressed that this was them this felt like a Mike Judge film as well I just realized this, this could be in like the oh, same yeah. this feels like it could be in a uh, what is it called it could be in a uh, the same universe as uh, what's that film uh, Beavis and Butthead or King of the Hill or <laughs> no, no, no no the other one the uh Office Space? Oh. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I've never seen that. Yeah, that one, yeah. No, I thought you were going to name his other movie, um, the one that takes place in the future. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I wasn't thinking of that. I was thinking of Office Space for some reason. Oh, I don't know which one. Hmm. Oh, which one were you thinking, Erica? Oh, the future one is, is a cult classic you have to watch. I just can't think of the title right now. Yeah, in Idiocracy. Idiocracy. Oh, Idiocracy. Oh, okay. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I've never seen that. But uh, for you, Eric, you're saying you've seen something in this similar style post this movie? Um, yes. So you guys saw the live-action Battle Angel Alita, right? And yep. after I saw it, even though I was kind of middling on the movie, um, I was a fan of the actress who played Alita. And so I was just like trying to follow her to see what, what else she had going on. And she had this series that just kind of popped up on uh, Amazon Prime in 2019, uh, not too long after the movie, uh, Alita. And it was this little, it was only like six episodes or something like that. Uh, and it starred her, and it starred, oh man, Better Call Saul, uh, 
actor, the lawyer, Saul himself. So she plays like a girl who's, I guess, about 28, 29, going through a little early midlife crisis. Um, and it's, a, like I said, six episode little series. And it's all done just like this. The same type of rotoscope technique throughout. It's called Undone. Oh, interesting. Uh, and it plays oh, wow. as mostly like a standard melodrama. Um, but there is some out-of-body spiritual time-jumping. Um, like like Almost like a sci-fi or speculative fiction type element to it. And it's really good. I don't know if, if it was ever like it seems like it was created as a one and done. I think like a limited series. Mm. Uh, I don't think it was made with the intention that there'd be like multiple seasons. But uh, no, it's good. It's really good, uh, and it's not just like this. Oh, weird. And it it was really weird to me too because I had no idea until I was watching it. But for whatever reason, it's set in San Antonio. And there's not a lot of things set in San Antonio. And I have no idea why it was. And and then it was just so strange because I was like, oh, cool. It's in my hometown, San Antonio. But it's in this rotoscope, so it's really hard to recognize anything. Um, <laughs> but even though this is rotoscoped, uh, once I read that it was mostly shot around Austin, um, I can see it. I can see it now. I can tell. Uh, mm -hmm. Certain things about it look very Austin-y, despite the rotoscoping. But yeah, and I just want to talk a little bit about the the animation pro process for this one, because for rewatching it, I thought maybe oh you know this is probably you know they developed some sort of filter they they just filmed it in live action and put this filter over it. Um, but no, this was frame by frame. They they edited the movie in live action. They locked down the final edit in live action, and then frame by frame, uh, 18 months worth of just animating everything by hand. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of work for, for this. <laughs> yes, I was very surprised. I was very surprised by that, because I also assumed that this was just shot live action, and they applied some type of, I thought it was some type of computer processing that that mimicked rot mm -hmm. rotoscoping. Um and when I read that too, and I thought, really? That's so weird. And apparently they had a lot of issues with that too. Because the oh, yeah. the animation studio that was hired apparently wasn't up to the job. Um, but I was very, very surprised. And I have a feeling, I don't know, I didn't look up into it. But I have a feeling that when they did Undone, that series I just spoke of, that they probably did have like a simple digital filter that they could... Because I highly doubt they put all that type of um, effort or man hours and actual painstaking like traditional rotoscoping type by hand animation I I feel like they just have a program now for like the series undone it just takes care of it mm. that's just my guess yeah, and I did think that uh, watching those extras and listening to them talk about how difficult it was doing that and how much time it took just to do one single frame and all the different people like they talked about the scramble suit then being like oh like you can't imagine how difficult it was to do that fucking scramble suit in every scene it doesn't make any sense they must just i don't know what the deal is they must have just chosen the wrong studio or something 
Because I just assumed, since he had already done Waking Life, and that was circa 2001, I just assumed, like, other directors, like, they do something, and, oh, we figured it out, and then it was easier the next time. But I don't know why they struggled so much with this production. Yeah, it was the same people who did Waking Life who did this one. And they said that Waking Life was easy because um, it was all about freeform. There was no consistency. So they were like, yeah, you know, you just... You have someone does this segment, does someone does this segment, and they just do their own thing. There's not much oversight, and you turn it you turn it in when it's done. They were like, for this one, we had a specific look in mind that we had to keep consistent throughout the whole film. We have one person most of the time doing one character, so they've got to go through and do all their frames. We have someone just doing the backgrounds. So I think that's one of the things. And they also said that just... Waking Life was a much more simple story with simpler elements. Like they talk about the end when um, Keanu Reeves is in that big, uh, I guess, the death field. And they were like, you can't imagine how difficult it was just for us to do all the fucking moving, uh, like corn stalks and things. And they're like, that stuff took just absolutely forever. And they said uh, <laughs> that they would never choose to do a project this difficult again if they were going to take on something like this. But. But you, Isaac, just did you feel a similar kind of thing, like thinking it was just like just a computer program, or could you see the level of detail? Because some of the details for me, I feel it's surprising to know that there's people going through it painstakingly doing it that way. So, as a fan of animation and would love to be an animator one day, um, I would, at least from what I know of rotoscoping, um, what, I, what I'm familiar with with rotoscoping and how I figured this was not a... I was like, if this was a filter, I'd be surprised. Um, mm. But it wasn't, which doesn't surprise me. Um, that people had to do this painstakingly. I mean, hey, that's, that's animation for you. <laughs> um, the thing that introduced me to rotoscoping was Ralph Bashke's Lord of the Rings, which I mm. still haven't seen, but... They did was Bashki went somewhere, either New York, England, I don't remember where it was, but he wrote a <laughs> He basically filmed the entire film in live action in like, you know, air quotes, cheap costumes. And then they animated the entire film basically uh, by by hand, which is insane. That was the 70s or 80s, whenever it was. So, you can, yeah, thank you. So. I knew what rotoscoping was from that and was very impressed. I wonder if... Obviously, I haven't seen it, but I wonder if What If had to rotoscope some things at all. Or maybe they just used a digital filter. I don't know. Because I don't know if there's scenes directly ripped from some of the movies in that series. I don't, like, does that, get, does that make sense? Where they just took, like, certain scenes. Makes sense. But, but it, it seems like it was just animated. Yeah, like, I think so. CG. Probably just easier for them. Okay, from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, you'd think that, especially since they're using CG, I thought they would just use, like, a... Like, the, one of the first shots I remember from that trailer in, in What If was they did a... They did the, the they did the camera circle with, like, all the Avengers at New York in the Avengers Assemble. I was like, they could have just rotoscoped that. Where they didn't even need to, like... I'm not saying... Okay, I'm not saying it's not complicated, but they could have just taken the pre-existing shot, put a filter over it, and then, like, animated everybody in CG. Like, it almost could have worked that way. But obviously I think they didn't it's do that. possible. They start from scratch. Yeah. Um, sorry, this, mo this movie. I'm sorry. This, this movie, this yeah. Movie. <laughs> um, 
This is a work of art. <laughs> Again, animators don't get uh, don't get enough credit for what they do. Um, I think I think over in Japan they're they're a lot more hardworking. Not to say that people over here aren't. They they certainly earn their dollar Damn. on this one, but yeah, <laughs> hey, some of those animators don't get don't don't get paid over there. So that's what I'm saying. I I think mm. these people at least got paid, but I'm not like I got to stop comparing it to contrasting. I think both jobs are just. <laughs> yeah. Especially like in betweens. I didn't actually. I think this is like an American production, and they didn't use any overseas work, at least from the credits I saw. Nope. That's amazing. That's good. They actually animated this in America. Good job to you guys. Uh, you earned your dollars. And everyone was in one big room. They were all crammed in this this one room. What was the What is the studio called, by the way? Oh, uh, fuck! I did not write it down. They said it at the beginning of the movie, and I just saw it. Um... Yeah, I looked at. I didn't. I guess I was looking for it in the credits, and I didn't see it. So I was like, what production is this? Because I wonder what else they've done. Yeah, I'll look it up. Yeah, you keep going, I'll, I'll look it up. I'll keep going, yeah. This is, uh... Yeah, they had to ha animate everything by hand. Yeah, that's a hassle and a half. But... Crazy. Yeah, and they did the traditional thing of, like, where, yeah, it's usually pers animator to character instead of animator to scenes. Uh, because in Iron Giant, for instance, that was... that Brad Bird was breaking the mold where he said, I'm going to sign an animator to a scene where usually it's an animator to a character so that's a cool idea because you can get two different animators animating the same character and it's it's done maybe a little differently uh just because each animator has their own quirks and i think that's a cool idea i wish more i maybe obviously i don't do my research and find out which animator does which but i kind of i wish that were the case obviously when they made akira no i don't think there was a single animator that was assigned to like each character i think that was a scene thing as well, but yeah, I like it when animators are in charge of scenes rather than characters. Because yeah, you you could probably get completely swamped and just downright bored of animating the same person over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they were saying um, the people who are working on Keanu Reeves that his facial hair would change throughout the filming. And they would have to do scenes where he wouldn't have facial hair and they would have to, because of course they only have the raw material. So they as the animators have to be okay, like how do we keep the beard consistent? Like how does he look without it to do one of the shots when he doesn't have it? And things like that they were saying, like when, when he went to Newth Path, they kept having to remind themselves, oh no, don't have the beard, he's not supposed to have a beard here. Even though the footage that they're using, of course he does have the beard because he didn't uh, shave anything or shave his hair off, so. <laughs> So just those funny little details that you wouldn't really necessarily think about just cause so many hiccups for them. <laughs> yeah, it certainly adds to some of the mis not the mystery, but it adds to the plot of the film for me because I thought there were certain scenes that were done in flashback because I don't know if this was a completely like linear like plot if that makes any sense. Why not? I wondered that too and some of that comes from just my knowledge of the book. Oh, okay. Some things just feel like... Like, there's a scene that happens early on. The bike scene. When Barris shows up with a bike and he's explained to them, Oh, I just got this bike for this great deal. And they all start freaking out about the gears. And they're like, Okay, let's take this outside to, like, a random stranger and see what they say. And if, if maybe an impartial party can solve our math problem with the gears. And the scene ends and it's never called back to. And for me... I know that that scene takes place after Arctur's first scene with the two psychologists, 
And that's actually like a very key moment in the book explaining what that scene means. This one, it has no meaning. They just end it. It just kind of feels like a fun little bit of them. What was the key meaning in the book? Well, maybe I'll turn this on you guys. What did you guys think that scene meant just watching the movie? Did it come across? How did it come across to you guys? Oh, it, it confused me because because they were confused. I mean, and then you can say, oh, because they were high. Right, I get it. But because the way I remember it, they just, for whatever reason, misinterpreted how gears work on a bicycle. Mm -hmm. And so the way they explained the number of, um, what do you call it? The way they explained like the number of wheels or cranks on each one it had, it was it was correct like it was an 18 speed mm -hmm. but they were just so jacked out of it that they couldn't understand like how the gears actually work like how you actually count them on a bike so my only takeaway mm -hmm. could be that just okay these characters are super high and don't understand like what's even correct so i mean mm. so that was just weird to me that's kind of what I thought it would, it would come across now. The scene in the book is the scene that they demonstrate to him that you have brain damage. Because they're like, this is a very simple math equation, because they do take the bike outside in the book. They stop the first stranger that they see, and they're like, hey, this is our problem with the bike. And he simply explains it. He's like, oh, yeah, obviously, you know, there's yeah five gears here, these gears, gears here. But it switches, and so the gears are used twice. And they're like, oh, okay, and then they just go back inside and the problem's solved and they don't think about it again. But for the uh, people in his, like, police division, they're like, yeah, all of you, like, none of you could see the problem because your brain's just, you don't have a, oh, how do they explain it? It's like they're, the way that they perceive things is just completely broken because of the drugs they're taking. And so they make a big deal about that one scene in the book, and that's one of the scenes that early on starts to break Arctur from reality. From that point on, he starts to split his identity. And in the movie, I, I feel like that scene just kind of plays for comedy, and then it ends, and it's never followed up on. It was kind of like it's put slightly in the wrong place. And but again, that's that's just my my uh, just reading the book. But even before I read the book, I always thought that scene was a little weird, just because it just kind of the comedy with Woody Harrelson just a little bit too much for me <laughs> but that's you know my particular issues with comedy which I do feel like he's one of the the people who doesn't his energy feels a lot different than the other people in the movie and it doesn't fully work for me but what do you guys think about the the casting of, of some of these guys here were Winona and Keanu married by this point oh were they ever married oh I don't know were they ever married oh well they're still I think they're still married, aren't they? What? Oh, Do you I, not know about I, that? No, I don't. Oh, I didn't know. So they they did a film, like, I think between John Wick 1 and 2, so, like, between 2014 and 2017, where they, like, played a couple who got married. And it turns out that wedding actually was, like, that, that the, the wedding actually happened. Like, without their knowledge. Like, the pre... Like, it was officiated, like, officially. <laughs> So, either they're still married now, or they're not. So, obviously, they weren't married by this point. But Wikipedia is unaware of what you're speaking of. I do remember hearing about this story, but yeah, I, 
I didn't realize it. Well, was see, better. don't don't look everything. That's why that's why you don't trust Wikipedia. I was looking at another article. I think it was either Google News or something, maybe Microsoft. I don't I don't remember, but I know it was it was not Wikipedia when I looked it up. Um, somebody told me that, so <laughs> maybe I'm wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that happened. Um, they honestly could be good together. I, I don't know why. Maybe just because they're they're both the same age and they kind of are rebellious characters. They or they always seem to be playing rebellious characters anyway. Um, I think this is really good casting. Um, it's Downey Jr. What do you expect? Like he he just goes into it. Like more of this from him. Like it's it's. <laughs> I don't know. He just he plays such like a a, a control not control freak, but a, a a guy who thinks he figured everything out uh, and and acts smart and uses big words. Ah, it's just it's, he's hilarious. And Harrelson's you'd think you'd think like he he's the stupid head of the group, but he's he sort of is, but he's also not. And I can see the comedy you you not liking the comedy Caleb from him. Um, Keanu's just great. I think this is a good role for him and distances himself mm-hmm. from the Matrix if people thought he was bland or Constantine. Uh, again, if they thought he was just a bland <laughs> actor. I think this. I think he does a really good job with the role here. Uh, it's so funny mm-hmm. seeing him with beard and the long hair. He, he just literally looks like John Wick. And that's like 18 years or 8 years before John Wick, so that's, that's funny. And Winona, yep, she, I think she does a great job here. Um... And then, as for the beginning scene with the guy and the cockroaches or whatever those bugs were, that was that was amazing. I was like, all right, where is where is this going? And it just turns out it's all in his head. I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. And again, his kind of final, like uh, when he's like committing suicide, that was another bit that was. I understand why Linklater would want to keep it from the book because it was a great scene in the book, but I felt in the movie. Like, it just, it felt weird to return to the character at that point, and then we don't see him again until, like, almost the very end. So it's like, do we really need this scene? Maybe we could have cut this and added more connective tissue with that ending. But it, it was still a fun scene, and it was nice to, uh, I mean, it's complete. Like, that. all that dialogue is just the, the direct dialogue right out of the book, so... It was nice to see it kind of recontextualized in this strange animation, but... Oh, there you go. Uh, where's the family guy? The Peter quote. Doing the, it's a title thing. <laughs> if, you get what I'm, if you get what I mean, uh, Isaac. I'm a little drunk. I don't know if I'm rambling, but... <laughs> uh, I don't know what you mean exactly. Oh, because I said the strange animation unintentionally. <laughs> oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> to cut that in. He <laughs> said it! Uh, all right. <laughs> Oh, but uh, for Robert Downey Jr., by the way, um, this was the only role that I knew him from going into Iron Man. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, he was in that, that movie, and he was good in that movie, but I was like, really? He's going to be the lead of your your superhero flick? Okay. Never turn out. It'll never, it'll never catch on. Yeah, so I was very, uh, very happy to see how it turned out. But I guess this was kind of the, maybe not the full start of his comeback, but kind of the re-earning his uh, place in Hollywood after burning so many bridges, but but Eric, what do you think? I mean, I feel like the, this cast um, I feel like we've seen a lot of them these days I don't know how much we saw them at the time, except for Keanu Reeves oh, maybe Winona Ryder was still doing a lot in 
2006. All of them. I mean, it was, it was yeah. Uh, when did she do Girl Interrupted? I think that was 98, maybe? Oh my god, was it? I think so. Maybe, ooh, was it 98? Uh, maybe year 2000? Uh, I'm not sure on that one. But, um... 99. No, mo most of them have been pretty active. Uh, except her at that particular moment. Um... It jumped out to me at the very beginning because I was like, I know this guy. I'm talking about with the bugs. And yeah, if you know yep. Linklater films, um, he was, uh, he notoriously played the, uh, the stoner in Days and Confused. And although I read that he, he only agreed to do this movie if he could separate this character from that character, there's, this is still like, to me, it's the same character except on a harder drug. <laughs> it's, it's the same character. Oh, and older. Uh, same character, older on a harder drug. But I recognized him, and I was like, yeah, okay, I see that. And then Downey Jr., yeah, seemed fine. Seemed perfect for him. Uh, almost a little distracting, actually, the famous actors, because, again, even though it's not technically one of his talking movies... I think of his talking movies, especially his older ones, as having people you don't recognize at all. So it's weird that they are recognizable mm. people. Um, very recognizable people. Uh, this seems like Woody House and just playing a character from his portfolio that mm. uh, that he can... This is just a persona that he has that it's just so Woody House and doing this. Um, I mean, that with what the character is. Keanu? Eh, good considering the role. Good fit considering the role. I think this is a good thing to do. Yeah, post-Matrix. Um, yeah, but it just... I don't know, it's just weird to me seeing so many recognizable people fill these roles. Uh, and then Winona Ryder just seemed random to me uh, compared to the other mm -hmm. the other's cast. Um... I have no I don't, I don't know it was that that's that was almost like an odd choice I guess but uh yeah I remember thinking like several years after I first saw this I was like is this the last thing I saw Winona Ryder do <laughs> I was like did her career like die after this movie where'd she go but I feel like now in retrospect I feel like her career kind of died long before this movie so it is kind of weird that she ended up in it maybe she was just friends with Link later I think she really went missing um I th perhaps around when she got caught up in her um, kleptomania, uh, her kleptomaniac scandal thing, maybe that's when she. Uh... Yeah, I think I think that was the end. But I know she was having problems on sets before that. She was getting real hard to work with and just weird, a little crazy, I guess. But... Sure. Um. But uh, I don't know. I Downey Jr. and Woody Harrelson are almost distracting for me because they're so playing mm. kind of like Dano was Dano, like Harrelson was Harrelson playing that character. That per, that per, that persona that, that Harrelson can go to any moment, it seems. And Downey Jr. kind of also going to something that's right in his wheelhouse. And, he, and he, this is retroactive, I guess, because he's so big and famous now because of Iron Man that maybe mm -hmm. it seemed weird. Uh, in retrospect, but it would have made more sense pre-Iron Man if I had seen this back then. 
And I guess it would have been kind of funny for anyone keeping up with the tabloids of his his career up to this point. Because it would have been like, oh, here he is. Like, he's now recovered from his years of being, like, a, a big drug addict or, you know, whatever <laughs> kind of thing. Sure. So him turning up in this movie might have, might have been a little bit of meta humor. But, yeah, I was also going to ask, um, for Keanu Reeves, this is one of my one of my issues with him is, did you, did it feel consistent throughout the movie? His kind of um, separation between his narc side versus his Bob Arthur side. Like, I felt that they were played so the same that it was hard for me to keep reminding myself that he's, like, separated into two identities. Like, did that come across very well for you guys, or? I mean, they weren't, he was similar, but is that crazy? I mean, it just, I don't know. I didn't know that he had to play someone so different. Other than when he's in his cop's persona, obviously he's trying to be sober or come across as sober. But other than that, I, I didn't see why they couldn't be the same person. Like there's that reveal later in the movie when someone, when his uh, partner, Hank, I think, is like, oh, I've, you know, I've deduced it and I realize that you're Bob Arctor. And he's like all shocked, like, I'm Bob Arctor? And I, I kind of remind myself, oh yeah, like he's he's been so separated by this point that he's forgotten who he is, but... For me, I just didn't feel like it came across super well, that element of it. But did you guys feel the same way? Or Isaac, maybe? Did did you feel that? Or Well, I was going to ask, is this whole film unreliable narrator? Mm-hmm. Yep. So that, yeah, answering that, and once you said, like, there's supposed to be a separation between the two, I know, I know there was, they, they were mentioning that, but if you said that was the thing from the book, especially with the bicycle scene... All of a sudden, the film makes sense now. I'm like, oh, so that's what you get from the book of like, the book informs you of these things. And when you see it, so really, if you want to watch this film, read the book first, because then if you watch the movie, then almost it's it's a better like, how would you put it? It's it's a good way of uh, explaining things behind the scenes stuff. Because if they're literally, if they're literally. Doing, if they're, if they're doing dialogue without thought balloons, even though we do have a thought balloon, funny enough, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and inner thoughts, um, that's that's interesting that they did transition scenes and examples, and they maybe he w maybe the animators tried to get some of those things to work, and they it just like you know they ran out of time or they had to focus on more things because again they were hand drawing everything. I don't I don't know fully, but yeah, I could see I could see that happening in a way. Where there's a lot of unreliable, or unreliable narrators, excuse me, and yeah, no, because I I was thinking like is every time we see uh, Keanu in the in the background of the, and he's watching himself almost, I'm like, is this present day or is this is this in the past? Like I'm very confused mm. to what he's what if this is live or this is not live, uh, and especially with like the the whole kids thing, like did he have a wife or did he not have a wife? That was done perfectly, I'd say. I'm just like. Is, is that happening? What, what, what's going on there with that? Yeah, that that I didn't know. I it, it becomes confusing, and it was confusing in the book too. I I couldn't tell because at that point he couldn't tell if he actually had those kids or if that was just something that was like given to him as his brief, and he's absorbed it into his identity. It's very difficult to uh, to keep track by that by that point because he's so far gone. 
and I will I will say um, because yeah you know I, I just read that book and for many years I'd wanted to read it because of seeing this movie and liking it a lot and it is a, a brilliant book highly highly recommend it it perfectly balances the hilarity of these people that are just so far gone and they have completely absurd conversations all the time that are at the exact moment hilarious and also deeply sad because it's like you can just see it that they're just completely gone like they're never going to recover they're, but it's super funny at the same time because of just the ridiculous conversations that they have like there's that moment in this movie when um the car breaks down and they're on the highway and barris talks about oh yeah you know i think that there's some people fucking with us that's a whole other thing in the book there's a lot of things that are breaking apart because barris is sabotaging them and I don't even think he's fully aware that he's doing it but so they go back to the house and he's got this thing like oh i put this uh, sign on the door to say you know come in but i've got a camera rigged up to see and then they get back to the house and they go on this big spiraling ramble of thinking that people showed up and planted drugs all over the place and how are they going to find the drugs and how are they going to like sell the house but how do they sell it without telling people that there's drugs hidden in it and it's this huge, like, little spiraling section of them just getting further and further down the rabbit hole. And Bob just keeps, like, pushing it on. Like, he's he's so far gone at this point that he doesn't even remember that he, he set up the, uh, the people to come plant the cameras. So he's completely caught up in the conversation and lost. And it's super funny. But then once you start thinking about it, it's like, oh, you know, poor Bob. Like, he's, he's never going to get fixed after this. He's so broken now. So, so highly recommend that book. And I think even in this movie, I think that scene plays pretty well. I think that's one of the standout sequences, the car bit, and then them coming home with the finding the roach. So apparently Robert Downey Jr. rewrote most of his dialogue for the movie himself um, with the blessing of the director mm-hmm. and supposedly taped sections of his lines like all over the house, on the walls, and all over the place. And... Knowing that it would all be rotoscoped out, so it didn't matter. So apparently he had to stop. That's funny. Well, he he got it down right. He's, I mean, the Barris character in this is the closest. It feels right off the page from the book, and I think he he's quite fun. Yeah. Well, I was a little bit lost as I was watching it because I wasn't paying full attention, and I was like, um, like just being unsure of the plot and what what character motivations were. Um, so that made it confusing for me, but I mean, once I figured it out, like who was who and what was going on, it it didn't mystify me, but I'm just, uh, because Isaac has mentioned how he wasn't sure, was this in the future? Was this in the past? Is this like, what's going on here with like the story being told non-chronologically? I didn't have that struggle. Um... Like I, I thought things seemed to progress fairly straightforwardly. Um, I don't know. I was a little bit confused by that because it mostly seemed straightforward to me. Um, I don't know. Because like I understood he was looking at playback of video when he was like watching the footage, like he wasn't watching live usually and. You know, based upon the advice that he was given. 
I'd say talking about it with you guys right now and then thinking about the quote at the end where this film was basically dedicated to many people Dick knew about, or Dick knew personally, uh, who had issues, whether physical or mental ailments, uh, and they started to get gone. This sort of, to me now, makes sense as to what this plot is about losing oneself from drugs and or from cancer or from uh, dementia or anything like that. I think th I th think that's what it's talking about, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And, um, Philip K. Dick they they put that they put that little bit at the end. That is a very summarized version of his actual um, afterward. I figured, which was a very beautiful and very sad. Um, I was even initially going to read it at the end of this for for you guys, but at least for you, Isaac. But I forgot my Kobo, and I'm a little too drunk to read it now. Maybe I'll do it in post. But but it is a beautiful ending to that book. That's that's totally fine. Um, but I I I I figured. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, this should feel a little more emotional right now. Like, not I'm not saying it's emotional manipulation, but like this feels like it was written from the heart. Like he genuinely believed this stuff, and it feels. Mm -hmm kind of paraphrased almost or at least cut it cut in a way so yeah I, I get that i thought this was like a quote i didn't realize it was directly from the book itself like an afterward uh and that's beautiful that's that's amazing that that he kind of did this and yeah and he t talked about a topic that's not very well at least at least in the day wasn't really discussed uh when, when it came to like me mental issues or or physical ailments like that mm-hmm Wait, which parts are you talking about? I mean, that was discussed. That wasn't isn't usually discussed. Like more specifically, like oh, I just mean in the day, like in in seventy seven when they didn't really, I think, talk about physical ailments or mental ailments. Oh, you mean in seventy seven? Yeah, in seventy seven. Sorry, I thought you meant like in two thousand six or something. No, 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 no. This, this, this link ladder smart. Maybe not smart, but I see what he was doing where he took the stoner culture and like the 90s culture especially i think that's actually why i casted a lot of these guys because they're from the 90s he took all these like teenage stoners who you know th these actors who were training mm. stoners in the day in the 90s and then kind of put them in like when they're a little more older and we see them what they're what they're like older uh so you then are just like oh they th these are these are people who have been on drugs for a long time uh, and look at what mm. it's doing to them. So maybe it's like early commentary on like you know how drugs should be early, early onset mental problems people would have with like doing drugs for a very long time. Maybe that's what he's talking about. But it's also smart. I'll give him this. It's smart that he's doing it with that culture in mind. And I think it fits the story okay. I don't know if you agree with that, Caleb, with the book. But I basically men in, instead of getting like you know Blade Runner, we get stoner culture instead. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I haven't read a Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep in a long time, but there was a, a very personal element to uh, a Scanner Darkly. Like it felt um, very. I mean, obviously, it's in a, a science fiction kind of setting. It's in a, this alternate kind of future in a very kind of dystopic world. Well, but just the. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> because. Okay, so, again, I didn't know this was based on a novel as I was watching it. And then once I started to pick up on that, because I was like, wait a second, what's going on here? This is so not like 
typical link later. And then I, I go, oh, okay, Philip K. Dick, oh, okay, Blade Runner, Minority Report. All of a sudden, I go, oh, okay, like, okay. I see how that can fit with some themes from that, from those other two um, uh, stories, movies. Um, but then, because Isaac was talking a lot about, you know, showing drug culture or the focus on on these stoners, these new age stoners. And while there, of course, there is all that, I was more focused on uh, the totalitarian aspect of the story Mm -hmm. and this near future dystopian world. That to me felt like so much more the focus of what I was and what I was thinking about. And then while watching the movie during one of the scenes where, Keanu's character, I can't keep track of all the names, especially with the, those suits, but um, Keanu's character, when he's in that office area with the, with the monitors, when he was looking at the footage, and specifically because he was watching it in fast forward, and on the monitors, it showed him uh, having sex with whoever, and it was all in fast motion, and at first I thought, oh, that's mm-hmm. Linklater doing like a little homage to Clockwork Orange, and then I was like, wait a second! That's not a, this is not a little homage to Clockwork Orange. This is a massive homage because it's not really just that. And then I thought, man, this this movie and Clockwork Orange, they, they're 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 kin with each other, um, at least at least on the mm. page, story wise. Lots of parallels I felt between that story and this story, um, and and similar main point. Well, for me, which is the main point, which is. The idea of this totalitarian Big Brother government getting into shit and causing as many, if not more, problems than they're actually trying to solve. Um, and I think that's one of the major themes of Clockwork Orange, and I think that's one of the major themes of this, very clearly. And it, and you know, from my point of view, to these types of stories, is that it's betraying. Like this is bullshit. <laughs> like the whole thing. I mean, if you take it as real. If you take it as real, like this is just yeah. And I think uh, using Bob to kind of symbolize what it means to become like a cog in a machine, like he completely is so detached from his real self, the person that he was before he became this this narc mm-hmm. that he like can't even remember, like completely detached from himself. And the fact that they're using him in the end, <laughs> they purposely got him hooked on drugs and gave him brain yes. damage. Yes gave him those little subliminal messages to uh, remember to collect that flower yes yeah it is it's super fucked up once you get to the end what the story is <laughs> yes and again like you, you see all the parallels to clockwork orange like it's not the same story but it's just it's along the same lines mm-hmm. and, and i'm like trying to have a bigger message um that is similar yeah i, I didn't i wouldn't have thought about that but yeah i could definitely see that yeah, and did, were you uh, surprised to see the old uh, Alex Jones? I didn't remember that he was in this. I mean, <laughs> I'd never seen it, so I didn't even know. And I didn't even realize it was Alex Jones until I read after the fact. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was a random crazy guy with a megaphone. Just that voice. That voice is so distinct for me. I was like, is that Alex Jones? I was like, oh, fuck, he looks so thin. Because I, I haven't seen him when he was young in so long. It's uh, it's weird to remember him back then. Well, I saw the I saw that, like, it was he was credited as Alex Jones. I'm like, is that, is that actually like the, you know, 
notorious Alex Jones. Yeah, that was him. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Second appearance uh, in a Linklater movie. Yeah, apparently. I mean, I just learned this today. Oh, interesting. Well, and of course, that is it is a good pick for Linklater. He does have that kind of connection to uh, Austin. conspiracy things. Well, so. And it's an awesome connection too. I mean, because Alex Jones is based out of Austin, and you know, Linklater loves Austin. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's from Texas. Uh, just the cool people. No, I just meant the film. The film overall. It's what I mean. See, everybody's from Texas. <laughs> Considering our uh, our slacker discussion, how he kept inserting like random conspiracy theory mm-hmm. stuff just in the movie, I was like, oh, this yeah, this is fitting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so this movie is actually, again, now I know, it actually turns out it's, it's a blending. Uh, and this is interesting, too. No, in retrospect, just to me. Because they were talking about stuff about Keanu's left brain, his right brain, and how you know the, their communication gets messed up, or one can get more dominant. Because, mm-hmm. because I was about to say, I always split link later movies into his mainstream and his talkies and this movie actually merges the two it actually bridges the two because it plays like in both like it's because it is structured like a mainstream movies you know like an actual story um like a traditional story even if it is a very unique story um blended with his talkie sensibilities so it, it like combines both sides of what is normally separate work for him. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, and I don't know. Anyth- I don't know much about him from this period. Was he still doing a lot of his? Was he doing more mainstream stuff around now? Around now? Uh, around, yeah, yeah, yeah. He just did this, <laughs> which is crazy, right off the heels of doing um, um, School of Rock. Oh, okay. Like, he had just finished that movie, and he jumped into this. Yeah, and when did that Bad News Bears come out? Bad News Bears Bad News Bears is a is a remake of a famous sort of, like, kid family movie from the late 70s, but very mainstream. Yeah, I used to love that. Yeah, that's why I was so disappointed when I saw the remake. I was like, oh, wow, they stripped away everything I liked about that original one and turned into this super bland just vehicle for Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember what year. Yeah, and I was never really a fan. As much as I love Linklater, not not that I thought his mainstream movies were bad. I, they just never, they never drew me in the way his talkies do. And it always seemed weird to me that it was the same guy who was doing, because it feels like two separate tracks. You know, almost like he's like the dude from Prestige, and like the twins are like have <laughs> totally different preferences. And you think Linklater's the same guy, but it's actually because there's two twins and one likes to make talkie movies and one likes to make mainstream movies. That's interesting. <laughs> well, this is a good melding of the two. <laughs> I think I'm high right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I only have a few more notes, but um, one of them was for you, Isaac. The scene when they come back from the whole car scene and they go into the house, the cat jumps up. Did you? Did that cat stand out to you at all? Because I was like, wow, that cat is a beautiful piece of animation i thought that was fantastic so i wrote in my notes to make sure to mention it Protoscope cat. i noticed the cats thank you for mentioning that was uh yeah I, well uh if you ever want to make me like a movie more always have cats in it so long as you don't do anything 
disturbing to cats. That's all I'm gonna say. No, I was gonna say like the CGI. I mean the musical cats. Oof, I didn't God. watch that. No. Uh, nor have I <laughs> seen day. the musical itself. That could be on your list of uh, crazy animation. We already like vowed it wouldn't. <laughs> it, it never would be. See now, if that was rotoscope, that'd be actually interesting. Uh, well, I wouldn't have hmm. a problem if that was rotoscoped, uh, or if it was CGI. But they just chose to like. I, it's mocap. That's that's a cousin of rotoscope. Yeah, but they didn't. I mean, like, I'm talking CGI though. I'm talking like actual like DreamWorks CGI or Pixar CGI. No, no, no. But I've heard because I haven't watched the movie, but I listened to some random podcast. That was talking about. Yeah, they probably argued that it was well, it was is animation. Well, they said that despite the movie being you know having uh, you know a, a, a laundry list of issues, they said that it was there was some cutting edge CG there, even if it was disturbing and with Uncanny Valley and all that other stuff. That there was some state of the art, and it, it's very much an animated movie, I believe. Like, I haven't watched it. I've only seen the trailers, you know. No. Uh, definitely a lot of it, like almost, well, I'd say every scene has anim- uh, CGI in it. But like a lot of the backgrounds and stuff are just big sets. and So no, I definitely wouldn't include it with strange animation because <laughs> it's has so much real stuff in it. But, and but. if that's like animation, well, why is it not Robert Zemeckis' animation from like, what is it? Beowulf, Polar Express... No, I know, and that is some strange animation, by the way. And or I know that wasn't him, but what did he do? What was that other one I just thought of? I completely forgot. The Jim Carrey. Uh, yes. The Christmas Carol. Nightmare Before Christmas. Christmas Carol. Yeah, Nightmare Before Christmas. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's for our stop motion uh, section of strange animation volume, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, don't ignore what I said there. <laughs> yeah, no spoilers. Um, but I was going to mention um, the reason I picked this movie. Because I knew I wanted to have rotoscoping in this first section. And Ralph Bakshi, of course, is famous for his rotoscoping. I was considering bringing out Wizards. But I thought for this movie, because this was the movie that introduced rotoscoping to me, that's why I ended up deciding with this movie over a Ralph Bakshi flick. But that'll definitely come up on the list, because he's made a lot of fucking weird-ass movies. So, <laughs> Wizards, I'm sure, is going to pop up at some point for you, Isaac. Very, very strange. Oh, Tintin. But. That's what it was. I was thinking of Tintin. I was like, that. that's that's good oh, CGI. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the visuals. Yeah, that's that's not my... Com- yeah, that you can't complain about that necessarily. The plot. Yeah, see, that's that's CGI, whereas Cats is not that. Oh, but for uh, the rest of my notes, I also wanted to mention just on the animation. So there's one thing in the movie that I, I found... A little disorienting at times and it's because uh, I'm sure Linklater just in the way he filmed it had a lot of flowing camera and I feel like the animators for whatever reason when the camera would change perspective things would in the background just start moving around like, did you guys notice that like yes. you walk into a room yes. and as they do everything would be like changing where it is in the scene yes I did notice and some that. of that I, I found a little, yeah, a little disorienting, <laughs> a little off-putting. But, did that bother you guys, or was it just kind of something you noticed? Or for me, it was just something I kind of noticed. It just seemed like a weird quirk, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't mm-hmm. think about it too much. 
Yeah, you Isaac, because I know that. Uh, yeah. Give me an example of a scene. So if they, when they came back from the, the uh, getting their car towed, was that, was that one of the scenes? Like when they got inside, were you saying like the coffee table was moving or the couch was moving or the, the computer in the, in the dining room was moving? Oh, it's like every scene with, with motion. Depending on how well you guys knew this stuff or maybe you don't know this stuff, it reminds me of if you play um, the original Mario Kart like on Super Nintendo um, and they're using sprite graphics but they're trying to make it look 3D and when the perspective changes like in the game as you're racing around corners, it causes like like the carts and certain things in the background to like move around in a weird way. Like the just because it's a very you know archaic game like archaic graphics trying to do 3d so it's just like things don't move the way they're really supposed to they kind of float a little bit mm -hmm. uh and so but i see i don't know how well you guys know mario kart and super nintendo uh it kind of has that weird effect yeah i've got my super nintendo mini right next to me but i haven't uh <laughs> opened up the mario kart version i did used to play that a lot as a kid but I don't really remember it too well. <laughs> oh, the old ones are super hard now, but anyway. Yeah, I've been playing a lot of uh, Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Country 2, which I never had as a kid and always really wanted, so it's been so fantastic on the, the Switch. I'm sure playing that. <laughs> what would be real disappointing with this movie would be like... Um, so I'm a big fan of Planet Terror, the Robert Rodriguez part of Grindhouse. And, of course... Planet Terror has all the artificial aging and distressing done to the image, like mm. pretty heavily throughout. And if you ever had the Blu-ray, <laughs> you could watch the entire movie without any distressing. So it would just be the the straight up regular digital footage. Um, and it is weird to watch because it feels like you're watching like a television production, like a low budget mm -hmm. television production. Looks miserable. And I can just imagine this if you just saw the raw footage um and let's pretend they actually tried to wear you know proper costuming and proper art design because uh, i'm sure they didn't but let's mm -hmm. pretend they at least did that and then you just watched it like traditional live action and, yeah it'd probably be very disappointing i imagine yeah the little animation special on the disc they show a lot of the scenes that they animate and yeah they're like in bare bones sets and yeah, just like wearing whatever they. <laughs> so yeah, no, they and they look like super sloppy, like they don't care. And they even uh, talked about the actors kept being like, "Yeah, you know, it's we're doing an animated movie, so we we're like, we feel like because it's going to be animated, we have to do like really, like exaggerated performances to try to get it to come across in animation." And all like a lot of them, especially Woody Harrelson, was like, "I have no idea if it's actually going to work. Like, I'm kind of like, maybe I should have been reeled in. I don't know." And I, I thought that was funny. Oh my God. <laughs> and whatever those suits are called, the ones that disguise your appearance, I mean, super cool, interesting concept. And I think it works really well with this this style of animation. But I just had the dumb thought because I'm watching the movie right now. The, when Some of the shifting faces um, in those suits, it reminds me of, uh, man, what was that story about the... The lady who was repainting that that um, oh yeah <laughs> that uh, antique painting of like Jesus Christ, <laughs> she painted over it and, and oh man and it looked terrible. That's uh, that's what the, the 
that's what that's what the uh those those suits like kind of look like to me sometimes when it's going shuffling <laughs> through the random phases i can it's just see like it. seeing that random painting like over the face yeah i could definitely see that <laughs> oh but i did want to mention I, this is also my notes every time i want to bring up something for my notes you guys mention it right before i say it it's great <laughs> but in the in the book there was a thing where he kept wondering about his scrambler suit because he was getting confused about who he is, what his real face is. His face became the nebulous blur. Could be when he was so detached from uh, Bob Arctor. He started to wonder how many times his real face would pop up. And if he was looking at a scrambler suit, would he recognize it anymore? And I thought that was a really kind of cool visual in my mind of how, how much he's lost himself. But, um, yeah, the only other thing I wanted to mention was... Um, have you guys ever heard of a movie called Renaissance from the same year, 2006? Nope. Yeah, I stumbled across this back in 2015, um, and I, I completely forgot about it until maybe like 15 minutes before we started recording, and I quickly typed it in. Yeah, there was, it's this weird French film, um, kind of a noir kind of thriller uh, done in completely black and white, really beautiful, stark black and white. But it's done in the same way. It was done all... They shot the film in live action, except instead of this pretty kind of painted on image, they just used 3D models. And so the 3D models, from what I remember, look pretty primitive. But Daniel Craig was in it, um, doing one of the voices. And I remember it being kind of interesting, but that's one of the only other things that I can think of in the modern era. Just like shooting a film in live action and then completely painting it over. Except that was in CGI, but... But that was the last note that I had. So if you guys got anything else, I'm I'm basically ready for final thoughts. Wait a minute. Maybe there was an Incubus song that was rotoscoped. Oh, okay. I feel like there was a... I think there was a music video and it was Incubus. Or maybe I'm wrong on that. You should not think of AHA. Did they do one? <laughs> Take on me. Oh, by the way, this... <laughs> sponsored by Radiohead. Or, you know, uh, <laughs> an entire musical section provided by Radiohead. Oh, really? Oh, I don't know. I don't know, just because I, I kept noticing Radiohead songs. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Except for the ending. That wasn't a Radiohead song. <laughs> I guess it makes sense. It was from that culture, so it was from that 90s time period, so what do you expect? Yeah, I'm sure maybe mixed up in the, the drug culture, maybe. But but yeah, final thoughts for you guys? Uh, maybe starting with you, Eric? Yeah, you just reminded me of something. You just reminded me of something a little while ago when you were describing... Um, Bob, is his name Bob? Uh, yep. Like losing himself and and forgetting who he is and being confused and the scrambler suit and all this stuff reminded me of another famous uh, sci-fi story movie based upon sci-fi novel, uh, Total Recall. Hmm. Um, and I don't know how familiar you are with the movie or the story, but. You know, because of all the messing with the memories of Quaid, like he's really not sure who he really is anymore. Like, is is he this personality that's been grafted onto his brain? Is that the true him, or was he somebody else before that? He's not really sure. And then there's other characters who are constantly trying to trick him. Like, this is not even real. This is not mm -hmm. you. Like, are you kidding? You know? And I don't know. Just it just talking about this movie and then thinking about these and thinking about clockwork orange and blade runner and and now i'm thinking about 
Total Recall. What the heck? Is there is there no such thing as new, like, neo-classic sci-fi now or something? Like, is it all in the past? Is, was all that good stuff written in the 50s, 60s, 70s? You know. <laughs> yeah, pretty much during the Cold War. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> you need a Cold War to bring those ideas out. All those concepts are all these famous novels. Like they were. They're, I mean, I haven't read them, but you know, I've seen the movies. Like they're so cool and they're so amazing. And I don't think there's been anything like that in sci-fi, like brought over to film, or it's certainly not written. I think the only thing is like something like uh, the the novels The Expanse is based upon. Because those were, those were written relatively uh, recently, but of course they're just um, those novels are just a huge homage to classic space opera uh, novels that came before them. Uh, so you know it makes sense. I mean it's it's like it's like a current band doing like an homage to like I don't know seventies prog rock or something. <laughs> you, know, you know, of course it's going to sound like that because that's what they're doing. Greta Van Fleet, but. Um, but Right, exactly. No, exactly. That's exactly what I meant. That's basically what the Expanse novels are. Except they're not doing progress. They're not. They're not. Yeah, they're not doing prog rock though. They're doing Led Zeppelin. Right, of course. But I mean, that's exactly what the Expanse is. It's like an homage to like famous sci-fi space opera novels. Um, and so, but is there nothing new? Like, is, is that all there is? Like, I don't know. As far as sci-fi stories go. Yeah, the guy who uh, wrote the original short story for Arrival, I read his uh, short story collection, uh, Story of Your Lives and Others, and he had some pretty cool sci-fi concepts just in those little shorts, but... And I heard the person who wrote, um... Oh, shit, what was it? Uh, what was that really great Natalie Portman movie? Annihilation. A little while? Annihilation. I've heard that those books are quite good as well. Oh, yeah, you're, oh, yeah. That was a good one. Oh, the, good job. Yeah. That, that was fantastic. Oh, and you meant, just mentioned Arrival. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Caleb, eventually you're going to get to the episode of Discovery from like two weeks ago. Oh, the episode no. was basically <laughs> their take on Arrival. Oh, yeah, boy. there's an Enterprise <laughs> episode that is basically Arrival. So, oh, yeah, you'll look forward to that one day. <laughs> oh, I'm so pumped. Can't wait. The final thoughts. Uh, I guess you... Uh, Mr. Isaac, what do you got for us? Final thought. I guess, like, in a way, those speculative fiction stories that were, you know, fondly remembered in the 20th century were basically when communism and or authoritarianism was just, like, governments were all of a sudden the new thing. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. But they, 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 these, these writers, these science fiction writers decided, let's look at this this future in dystopian way and see if like you know things will come to be uh or if we'll go backwards at all and yeah, you had a lot of them that were just dystopian this is a very different take i'd say than any of those ones that you mentioned by the way i think as each like as you said blade runner clockwork orange scanner darkly uh total recall they all are like different aesthetics which i like um different eras of course but the idea is still the same is that there's a group of people like the authority is is controlling having their butting into the the everyday lives of of humans nowadays uh of of the man of of each individual person and i think that's sort of nowadays like it's kind of come true in a way because you have a small device right now that 
is you can allow it to use your location. Um, and that's corporations, not so much government, but they can sell you that information or they can give the information to that government. So, eh, like, it's kind of true in a way. And I guess we've kind of, like, so, like, like Winter Soldier, we've kind of accepted that. I guess they were right. I guess in the end, these these science fiction writers were correct, and we uh, we went down the path they didn't want to go down. So hopefully they're they're not uh they're not around to see that this future come to be. It's <laughs> just nice. this dystopia that we're living in right now, or utopia for some. Who knows? Like I could be wrong on that. But this movie, um, was this like Linklater's idea from the start, or was he put on this project? Uh, later, like, after the fact. Um, he originally wanted to do another Philip K. Dick story. Um, oh, it's got a weird name. Ubik, I think it was called, he wanted to adapt initially. And I think he said that it was, it was just, like, breaking his brain. He, he could not figure out how to adapt it. Interesting. So he switched to this one instead. So it was him who chose to try to adapt Philip K. Dick. I see. So he initiated this from the start. Okay, so this is his like idea from the start. Good, good to note. Yeah. Maybe one day he'll have success with that. I don't know. If he could do Boyhood, then I guess he could do this. I uh, or Ubik. I, I don't know. But <sighs> this, I I would love for him to do another one of these. Um, yeah. uh, well, I just mean like maybe science fiction and rotoscoping, or maybe rotoscoping again. This was fascinating. I wish to see more of this kind of stuff. And there probably is out there, and I'm just being ignorant to the facts, that fact, and just not looking for it. But yeah, I'd love to see maybe even an original film like this, where it's not based off of a Philip K. Dick novel, or maybe maybe it's based off of something, but like in name only. Yeah, I, I don't know how separated this feels to you, Caleb, from the book. I, I think you mentioned that plenty of times throughout this the speakeasy, <laughs> but I, I it. It almost does feel like it has his handprint all over it, just because of the the aesthetic he puts over it. Because this, is, I think, it's a very unique uh, aesthetic, and I don't think if you had done this in the '70s, like right after it came out, if it would look the exact same, it would probably look very different. Uh, yeah, it'd look like a porno without the sex. <laughs> I guess so. So, in a way, like him taking this and applying the stoner filter over it really makes it a unique film in and of itself um you would never put philip k dick and stoners together but it somehow works i'd say i think i'm i'm really feeling this film would i watch this again one day yeah no i totally would because maybe it would on my second viewing or so make sense oh awesome or maybe not that it's not making sense to me but maybe i'll understand more and when i read the book uh things will start to click so yeah, I would I'd absolutely watch this again. I'd recommend this film to anybody. But I, I think I'd also preference, please read the book before you watch this film because um, that'll give you some explanations as to what's happening. Because maybe I'm just stupid and I just didn't... I, 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 maybe I don't need to explain more, but I hope next time I'll say this. Hopefully next time I watch this film and read the book, um, the scenes where he's basically both hemispheres are split and he's not seeing reality properly. Um, maybe that'll come across as no this makes sense not just because I uh, watched the film before but it actually does make sense and it's coming across naturally hmm. and I guess I'll I'll go next just follow up on that yeah I'm happy you liked it you know watching this one again 
I was like, oh, like, I'm curious what Isaac's going to think about this one. I hope he likes it. But, <laughs> but no, I, I definitely, um, I was, like I said, I was kind of concerned coming back. Like, is it going to hold up? Especially because I had just finished the book. But I still think it absolutely works. And especially because it's such a unique visual experience. I think that really adds a layer to it. I think it still carries a good pace, even if, because if you just read the book, it feels a little bit like like a very abridged, you know, kind of clip version where they, you know, very much distilled it down to its bare elements. And just overall, I think the, the story in A Scanner Darkly is fantastic. And I think this is a good kind of introduction to it. But I would definitely highly, highly recommend that book. I thought it was just great. So, but for you, Eric. But, uh, but both, I think, are great. Sorry. I'm going to cheat. Cheat a little bit, and because I just gave my final thought, and then I have another final, final thought. Oh, yeah. Um, kind of how this popped in my head, but another movie this movie reminds me of, um, but I haven't seen it in ages, and it happened to come out in the same year. I don't know if y'all have heard of Southland Tales. Oh, yeah. Um, absolutely. But it was, it was made by the guy who got famous for making Donnie Darko. And when I saw Donnie Darko, um, like a few years after it originally came out, I was blown away by Donnie Darko. I thought it was like the greatest thing since sliced cheese. And I was obsessed with the movie. Like I must have watched it like 20 times, like in one month um, initially. And so then the guy who made Donnie Darko was going to follow up with this thing called Southland Tales. uh, And I think I rented it or something because uh, I don't think you could catch the movies because it was gone so quick <laughs> from the theater. Uh-huh. And I, it's like I was just thinking, all right, this, this is going to be the next greatest thing. The movie doesn't really coalesce. But the reason oh. it reminds me of this movie is because um, building off of his notoriety from uh, Donnie Darko, which was a relatively low-budget movie that mostly had nobody's cast in it at the time jake gyllenhaal wasn't anybody but um with southland tales because he got all this notoriety he was able to like cast all these like very recognizable faces and known actors and actresses he had a much bigger budget it was a much more ambitious story Mm. but it has like some kind of weird mystical quality which i'm not really clear about it. and again i haven't seen the movie since probably 2007 but it's just these people in this again near future dystopian los angeles and they're just kind of doing things and you don't really know where any of this is going and and it's not drug fuel but it does get psychedelic in a way like what the heck is happening uh by the climax i don't know i just feel like even though it's not animated or anything like that I just feel like there's a similar vibe going on with the, absolutely. Um, there you go. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought about it, but how have you seen everything, Kayla? How have you seen everything? How? how yeah, I, I have to. I have to comment on Southland Tales. So yes, I'd seen Donnie Darko. I was very curious about this movie, and it came to a Canadian premium channel called the Super Channel, which is like a kind of like an HBO. And when it was on the Super Channel, I watched Southland Tales like maybe like seven times in about two weeks. Oh I was God. just absolutely in love with it. <laughs> and going back to oh it, 
it does not hold up, but it just so captured the moment for me, and it was I just absolutely loved it. So, <laughs> and I've never encountered anyone else who's actually seen it. So, so kudos for you to bring it up. That's great. I would have never saw the connection, but absolutely. <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. Wow. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Yeah, random end. But but thanks a lot for coming on to this uh, strange animation episode. I've been absolutely enjoying this series, Isaac. I think it's been a lot of fun so far, covering some kind of different stuff for the podcast. And are you excited for uh, Perfect Blue next? Oh yeah, thought yeah, that was yeah, it's Perfect Blue, not Millennium Actress. I keep thinking it was Millennium Actress for a reason a second, but no, it's it's return to Japan and uh, go to the late great Satoshi Kon. With his perfect blue. If that's a color at all, I have no idea. Yes, I can't wait to revisit this one. It's going to be a very interesting conversation, I'm sure. But thanks again, Eric, for coming on for this as a, as a guest on the, the Strange Animation series. Isaac, of course, always happy to talk with you. As always, thank you. And uh, I guess we'll see you all on the next one. Peace. For the stinger, I'm going to read the afterword that I mentioned uh, during the episode. Uh, this is a few weeks later, and I have a little bit of a cold, um, but I have to get this out today. So, <laughs> so hopefully it won't be too bad, but, but here we go. Author's note. This has been a novel about some people who are punished entirely too much for what they did. They wanted to have a good time, but they were like children playing in the street. They could see one after another of them being killed run over, maimed, destroyed, but they continued to play anyhow. We really all were very happy for a while, sitting around, not toiling, but just bullshitting and playing, but it was for such a terrible brief time, and then the punishment was beyond belief. Even when we could see it, we could not believe it. For example, while I was writing this, I learned that the person on whom the character Jerry Fabin is based killed himself. My friend on whom I based the character of Ernie Luckman died before I began the novel. For a while, I myself was one of these children playing in the street. I was, like the rest of them, trying to play instead of being a grown-up, and I was punished. I am on the list below, which is a list of those to whom this novel is dedicated, and what became of each. Drug use is not a disease, it is a decision. Like the decision to step out in front of a moving car, you would call that not a disease, but an error in judgment. When a bunch of people begin to do it, it is a social error, a lifestyle. In this particular lifestyle, the model is, be happy now, because tomorrow you are dying. But the dying begins almost at once, 
and the happiness is a memory. It is then only a speeding up, an intensifying of the ordinary human existence. It is not different from your lifestyle. It is only faster. It all takes place in days or weeks or months instead of years. Take the cash and let the credit go, as Willen said in 1460, but that is a mistake if the cash is a penny and the credit a whole lifetime. There is no moral in this novel. It is not bourgeoisie. It does not say that they were wrong to play when they should have toiled. It just tells what the consequences were. In Greek drama, they were beginning, as a society, to discover science, which means casual law. Here in this novel, there is nemesis. Not fate, because any one of us could have chosen to stop playing in the street. But as I narrate from the deepest part of my life and heart, a dreadful nemesis for those who kept on playing. I myself, I am not a character in this novel. I am the novel. So though was our entire nation at this time. This novel is about more people than I know personally. Some we all read about in the newspapers. It was, this sitting around with our buddies and bullshitting while making tape recordings, the bad decision of the decade, the 60s, both in and out of the establishment, and nature cracked down on us. We are forced to stop by things dreadful. If there was any sin, it was that these people wanted to keep on having a good time forever, and were punished for that. But, as I say, I feel that if so, the punishment was far too great and I prefer to think of it only in a Greek or morally neutral way, as mere science, as deterministic, impartial cause and effect. I love them all. Here is a list to whom I dedicate my love. To Galene, deceased. To Ray, deceased. To Francie, permanent psychosis. To Kathy, permanent brain damage. To Jim, deceased. To Val, massive permanent brain damage. To Nancy, permanent psychosis. To Joanne, permanent brain damage. To Maureen, deceased. To Nick, deceased. To Terry, deceased. To Dennis, deceased. To Phil, permanent pancreatic damage. To Sue, permanent vascular damage. To Jerry, permanent psychosis and vascular damage. And so forth. In memoriam, these were comrades who I had. There are no better. They remain in my mind, and the enemy will never be forgotten. The enemy was their mistake in playing. Let them all play again in some other way, and let them be happy.